If you would, please join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, come. Use your word to teach us, Lord, and may we be transformed forever by it. May we not leave this place as we came. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our heart that would cause us not only to magnify the Lord Jesus and worship here in this place, but as we leave this building, to want and to desire to lift high his name, his glorious gospel, and to take it to the nations. We pray, Lord, that you would do this work in us, in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. If you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. When we concluded last week's sermon, we had just gotten to the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And spoiler, spoiler alert here, that's not the end of the story. We have yet to cover the burial and resurrection. And in the history of the church, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in totality encompass the good news. The gospel is incomplete without any one of those events. The Apostle Paul emphasized this in his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. All three events, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, make up the gospel. So I left the story incomplete last week, and we need to finish it up. And before I launch into this morning's text, I need to remind you just of a few things that we covered last week leading up to the crucifixion. Our author, Matthew, brought forward three types of authority here in his narrative. The religious establishment, the Roman government, and the triune God. And despite the first two opposition, Matthew has been demonstrating that God has been in full control of all these events all along. That fact is going to have relevance to our discussion this morning as we finish out the book. Now, we will complete Matthew's gospel, but when we get to its conclusion, we will ask ourselves, does the story end? That's going to be our question. Does the story end? Even though we're covering 31 verses this morning, we have a very simple three-point outline. Let me give that to you. Number one, Jesus was dead. Number two, Jesus is alive. And number three, this changes everything. In fact, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to take my cue from Brother Brian. If you will, repeat them right after me. Jesus was dead. Jesus is alive. This changes everything. Now, as I've said repeatedly, as we've covered this book since August of 2019, 106 sermons, by the way. Our author, Matthew, has been recounting his experiences with Jesus in his way. He was an eyewitness to these events, and he has a purpose in telling his story. 
Like we saw last week, he includes some details not found in the other Gospels, and he omits others. This is not because he forgot or he made an error, but because he has a specific point that he wants to make and emphasize. And this is going to become very clear to us this morning. So far, Matthew has shown us that Jesus has been meticulously fulfilling his mission when he told his disciples back in Matthew chapter 20, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew has presented Jesus' crucifixion as a momentous event. Jesus has paid the sin debt for his elect, receiving the full wrath of the Father, and the Father found his sacrifice acceptable. We have read that the temple curtain dividing the, the Holy of Holies was split in two. The dead came to life after the resurrection. And even a Gentile Roman centurion recognized Jesus' divinity in his death. And all these three relate to the three authorities that I mentioned earlier, by the way. The religious establishment is changed forever. The triune God has conquered death, and not even the Roman Empire can stop the gospel. But Matthew is not done yet. He wants to emphasize to his readers that Jesus was dead. He didn't just faint or was in a coma or dropped from exhaustion. He was dead in every sense of the word. He experienced the full wage of sin, death. So Matthew gives us a whole host of eyewitnesses proving that Jesus was dead. And what most failed to consider reading the Gospels from our perspective in the 21st century is that the writers go to greater lengths to prove that Jesus was actually dead more than they do to prove the resurrection. The resurrection wasn't in doubt at the time of this account. People had seen Jesus alive. Jesus didn't just appear to the 12 and everyone took their word for it. As Paul says, he appeared up to 500 people in one sitting. Even the Jewish historian Josephus said that people saw Jesus alive after his death. The resurrection wasn't in doubt, but whether or not Jesus was actually died or he had actually died, that was what was being called into question. So he names names of eyewitnesses here. And scholars think these people were likely still alive at the time that Matthew published his gospel. His facts could be checked. So he mentions Simon of Cyrene in verse 32 of chapter 27. Mark tells us that he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who could also testify. You have three ladies mentioned here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and this might also possibly be Jesus' mother too, though it's not certain, and Salome, the mother of James and John. Not only could you ask these women if they saw Jesus dead, but you could also ask their sons. While women were not highly regarded in Jewish society, the church valued them and their testimonies. These women had been faithfully serving Jesus since his ministry in Galilee, and the Holy Spirit honors them by including their names in this gospel. It demonstrates a new order in the church in which the status of women will be elevated. Matthew also emphasizes the death of Jesus in his burial. A man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a follower of Jesus, takes it upon himself to see that the Lord is properly buried. Luke's gospel tells us that he was a dissenting member of the Sanhedrin, and both he and these previously mentioned ladies risk being ceremonially unclean for the feast following the Sabbath by preparing the body of Jesus. 
And Joseph certainly would have had the disdain of his fellow council members by burying Jesus in his personal tomb. Matthew is the only gospel to tell us that Joseph was rich, most likely to highlight Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is still demonstrating that the triune God has been in control all along, fulfilling his purposes. Joseph's request to bury Jesus' body here, and surprisingly, Pilate allows it. This would have been unusual. Typically, if anyone was executed for treason, the Romans would leave the body displayed and rotting as an example for any who would think to challenge Rome. Obviously, Pilate didn't think that Jesus was guilty. Joseph, and according to John 19, verse 39, his companion Nicodemus, prepared the body to be buried before official sundown, observing the law found in Deuteronomy 21. Even in his death, Jesus is still fulfilling all righteousness. They buried the Lord in a typical cave-like tomb, which would have had a a slotted groove cut along the rock in order to roll a disc-shaped stone that would seal it off from animals and grave robbers. It would have required multiple men to move it. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, possibly the sister of Martha here, were eyewitnesses that Jesus was dead, that his body was prepared for burial, and that it was actually placed into a tomb. The next story is exclusive to Matthew. Writing his primarily to a Jewish audience here, he would need to deal with the rumor that had been circulating that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body. So the following day, the priest and the Pharisees, again, this is the entire religious establishment, gather before Pilate. This would have been on the Sabbath day, and to meet with a Gentile would have profaned their own traditions, thus showing how selective they were in choosing when and where to adhere to their own rules or not. These men were well aware that Jesus said he would rise again, and they wanted to place a guard around the tomb. But don't lose sight of the fact that these authorities, Pilate representing the Roman government and the religious establishment, knew Jesus to be dead. They were so certain of it, their fear was that someone would steal the body. Two things to note here. First, this was a major concession made by Pilate. The Jews were allowed to have their own soldiers for the purpose of guarding their temple. But Pilate grants them permission to also guard the grave outside the city. That was not normally allowed. Also, Pilate did not feel threatened by the followers of Jesus at all. He wasn't going to waste his time or his resources on this. And second, these Pharisees and Sadducees do send their own guards. They make their men work on the Sabbath day. We see how duplicit they are about obeying their own laws when they want to do so. They even take the time to seal the tomb, which would have been sealing it with tar or wax to ensure that it couldn't be opened without great difficulty. Jesus is dead, and his body is in the tomb. Of that, there is no doubt. But that was only for two days. Just as Jesus predicted, something marvelous is about to occur on the third day here in chapter 20. The Jews numbered their days from sunset to sunset. So Matthew reveals to us that this glorious moment occurred after the Sabbath on the first day of the week. Remember, Matthew is writing to an established church. 
They were already meeting on Sundays, the first day of the week. Matthew is emphasizing why they gather on the first day. Matthew doesn't include some of the details in his resurrection account that are in the other gospel writers. He only mentions one angel instead of two. He doesn't include the conversation with the women on the way to the tomb and that their reason for being present was to bring more embalming spices to complete the job that was hastily done the previous Friday. Matthew also doesn't mention that the speaking angel specifically wants them to tell Peter about the news of the resurrection. Nor does Matthew include Jesus' conversation with Mary Magdalene after he presents himself alive. Again, this is not because Matthew was unaware of these facts or he fabricated his account. He has a reason for telling his story his way, and that is to get to the Great Commission. Getting the gospel out is his primary concern. By all accounts here, verses 2 through 4 were events witnessed by the guards. They were the ones that felt the earthquake and saw the angel descending that rolled back the stone. And while they trembled in fear and were subdued like dead men, it doesn't mean that they lost their faculties. But they were helpless to stop Jesus from emerging from the tomb. In verse 5, the speaking angel reveals to the women what has transpired. And like previously in the story, an angel has to tell humans, don't be afraid. The angel knows that they are seeking Jesus who was dead. Note the past tense there. But he is alive and risen. He orders them to go quickly and tell the disciples to report to Galilee. And as they depart in joy, these ladies encounter the risen Jesus. Jesus is alive. Now, as an aside, once again, I want to point out how Jesus values women. Jesus came to the earth through a woman. Jesus first revealed that he was the Christ to the woman at the well. Matthew puts forward these women as able to testify to the validity of the resurrection at the time, something unheard of in the Jewish world. And Jesus takes the time to appear to these ladies, even though they would have been happy to take the report of the angel back to the disciples regardless. But our Lord honors them by allowing these female followers to be the first to witness his resurrection. Jesus is alive. At the same time these ladies were delivering their news, the guards recover their ability to move and they report to the chief priest what has happened. These leaders gather all the Sanhedrin and instead of punishing the guards for failing to protect the body, they pay them off. These soldiers should have been disciplined. Now they are publicly to tell everyone that they failed at their job and allowed the disciples to steal the body. According to verse 15, Matthew was well aware of this rumor that had spread amongst the Jews, and he sets the record straight. He points out how ludicrous that fabricated story was. Jesus is alive. The next scene occurs in Galilee. We're not told how long this uh, occurred after the resurrection, but they met at a prearranged place. Jesus referred to this all the way back in chapter 26, verse 32, when he predicted that they all would desert him. Now, we are not given what mountain this, or told what mountain this was, but for this event, we're told that the 11 gathered to him, that's the 12 minus Judas, and most likely his other followers were here too. I think that's what accounts here for verse 17. The 11 worshiped him, but others that were there doubted. The Greek word here can also mean hesitated. 
We might ask, well, why did some doubt or hesitate? After all, Jesus just triumphed over the attempts of the religious leaders to suppress him. He triumphed over the Roman execution. And and more importantly, he triumphed over sin and death by his atoning sacrifice. Why doubt? Why hesitate? Well, I've read multiple explanations as to why, but my best answer here is human fear and a lack of faith in Jesus. We think things like, yeah, Jesus, well, you triumphed over your enemies, but I'm not you. What if I fail? I can't do the things that you ask. In my opinion, I believe Matthew has woven his passion narrative leading up to these final three verses in the gospel. Because Jesus died and because he is now alive, this changes everything. Matthew wrote his account of the life of Jesus to the church. And this church, at the time that this gospel was being published, is facing opposition from three fronts. Number one, we see from the book of Acts, the first wave of persecution came from the Jewish religious establishment. Number two, that persecution would increase and also come from the Roman civil authorities. At the time of Peter's first letter to the churches in Asia Minor, he was anticipating a time when persecution would be empire-wide. And number three, the third front was their personal sin, perhaps even exhibited in this fear that created doubt in verse 17. If you're like me, you can feel overwhelmed by your failure to maintain personal holiness. It can be discouraging, and it can make you feel like giving up. You certainly don't feel qualified to deliver a message as grand as the gospel. All three of these things can cause fear to fulfill the Great Commission. But let's take a moment to take stock of what Matthew has just shared with us in these final two chapters. Could the religious establishment prevent Jesus from accomplishing his mission? No. Could the Roman government stop Jesus in accomplishing his mission? No. I love to see the heads wagging back and forth. I like that. Is there any sin in the life of a believer that Jesus cannot overcome? No. Nothing can stop Jesus. So this is what happens next. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, Worshippers and doubters alike, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has all authority? Thank you. (laughs) Who? If you live in a Muslim or Hindu nation that suppresses its people, do they have authority? No. Does a communist, atheistic regime have all authority? Do earthly governments have authority? Does famine and disease, does Satan and his minions, does sin and death have authority? Who has all authority? Jesus Jesus died, he is now alive, and this changes everything. All authority here means just that. All authority in heaven and on earth, for we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. 
And so our all-authoritative king now conveys that authority to us in order to send his church on mission. And here's the mission, verse 19, go therefore, the therefore refers back to the fact that Jesus holds all authority, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We proclaim what we know. Jesus died for sin. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again, and this changes everything. When we proclaim that information, we make disciples as the Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus. We baptize them under the name of the triune God so that these new disciples are also under the authority of Jesus to go out and make disciples, and we teach them to observe all of the teachings of Jesus. When you consider the instructions... It's fairly simple. Proclaim the message. Make disciples. Baptize and teach them so that they can go out and proclaim the message. Make disciples and baptize and teach others. But for some reason, we talk ourselves into thinking that the task is too difficult as though it is all up to us. But here's the best part. We are not alone. There is a reason that Matthew ends his gospel with this sentence from our Lord. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who has all authority? Who is with you as you go into the world to make disciples? And how long will he be with you? Could the religious establishment stop him? Could the Roman Empire stop him? Could sin and death stop him? No, they are all defeated. Jesus died. He is alive. This changes everything. Oh, church, are you sensing the power that is inside of you? Do you realize the words inspired by the Holy Spirit in this book have sustained you in some of our darkest hours? 106 sermons and three years of trials, tragedy, and triumphs. The comforting word of God has proven that the Lord is still with us. The one who defeated Satan in the wilderness is with you. The one who teaches with authority is with you. The one who commands demons to come out is with you. The one who walks on the waves and calms the storms is with you. The one that can heal with a mere word is with you. The one who came to proclaim liberty to the captives is with you. The one who raises the dead is with you. The one who knows every strand of the hair on your head he is with you. The one who draws people from every tribe, tongue, and nation is with you. He is the true seed of Abraham, the true son of David, the one who came to set his people free from the exile of sin. He is the rock on which you build your house. All along, Matthew has been telling us the king of kings, the Lord of lords is with you, and not even the gates of hell can overcome his church. Jesus, alive forevermore, changes everything. This is good news. So what will you do knowing this? Will you worship or will you doubt? Will you go or will you hesitate? Because while Matthew concludes his book here, the story is not over. The effects of Jesus being alive are still being felt today. You, brother and sister, are a product of it. 
At one point, you were made aware of your sin and how it not only separated you from a holy God, but also how you deserve punishment for it. You felt your need for Jesus, and someone shared the glorious gospel that Jesus died for sin, that he was buried, and he raised again. You placed your faith in that, and your life was transformed forevermore. And the message is still at work today. Will you go? Will you tell? Will you make disciples? Your elders have have seen, and we we have captured this vision. We're not going to allow this church to settle for its own little kingdom here. I leave tomorrow to go to Southeast Asia and to reestablish our work over there. Yes, COVID has delayed us, but it cannot stop the gospel. I'll be working with our partners to plan out the work for our next team to go in the spring. Who's going? Who's going with us? Will you go? Will you send others to go if you can't go? Several years ago, we became concerned over the number of Baptist churches that were closing their doors because they were unhealthy. We looked into what we could do to help revitalization efforts here in our city. But now even, our current situation is different. Madison County is booming, folks. New developments are are springing up, and people are moving in faster than we can plant healthy churches to meet the need. For example, let me give you just one neighborhood. If you drive down Zert Road, you will see a Domino's, a, a Publix, an Outback Steakhouse, even a baseball stadium. But what you won't see is a church until you get down to Triana. I have been told that 10,000 housing units are being planned in the Owens Crossroads community, but no churches. 2,000 homes are planned and being developed in Meridianville, but no new healthy churches. So now our elders have been trying to figure out, well, how do we get healthy churches into these unchurched areas? And one of our elders, Brian Milby, said, I'll go. So Brian is getting training for church planning so he can help us understand how we can get multiple churches going in the near future. Brian and another elder will be launching Providence's first church plant here in Huntsville in the fall next year. I know people hate change. I know it. But when we read the New Testament, we see that the church sends out their best. We sacrifice in faith so that the gospel will go out. We are not here to be comfortable, but we're here to be on the move. And that's not all. We still have our church plants in Cowan and in Boston and Portland. We have missionaries around the world. We've got a theology conference coming up the last weekend of October. I hope you will mark your calendars now where J.D. Payne, an expert in church planning, is coming to talk to us about the unreached people groups that are here in the United States that have no gospel witness uh, going out to them. I hope you'll be here for that. We will do all we can to reach the unreached in the unreached places. But then there is your own community. There are people lost in their sin that live in your neighborhoods. In this gospel, Jesus has told us the fields are white and ready for the harvest. We're to pray for more workers. Will that be you? 
The simplicity of the message means all you have to do is just speak it aloud to others. It's that simple. We proclaim he saves. The Holy Spirit provides the power in the word. Jesus promises that he will be with you as you do this. I hope that I have rattled your cage this morning. I pray you are filled with such hope that you can't wait to burst through those doors and share the message. And while we have concluded Matthew's book, the gospel is not over. The story is not done. Jesus was dead. He is alive. And this changes everything. Join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you for the good news. As I had the opportunity to talk with someone who was lost this week, Lord, I pray for that soul now. They were in such despair. Feel like they had made their life a mess. <laughs> but how glorious it was to be able to say, you know, Jesus was dead. He is now alive. And this can change everything for you. As we hold on to the hands of those who are suffering, whether it's from sickness or from grief, we can remind them, you know, Jesus was dead. But he is alive, and that changes everything. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be so fueled with the gospel that we cannot stop ourselves from going and proclaiming it because truly the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything, everything. There is hope for a dying world out there. There is hope for lost people who will spend eternity in hell, Lord. But we know that because Christ has risen, it changes everything. So, Lord, we pray, fuel us. Give us a passion for Jesus Christ. Allow us to, to go throughout this world, Lord, wherever we're called to go, whether it's Southeast Asia or it's just next door or across the street. We pray, Lord, that you would motivate us and inspire us to remember the good news of Jesus Christ and to proclaim it faithfully. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.